page six of your bulletin. In Romans 5, 8. But God demonstrates his own love for us in this. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Don't get your hopes up. No, just kidding. <laughs> Let's pray. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for the joy that we can share, the lives that we can share together. We thank you for all that we can share in Jesus. And we're asking that you would put the spotlight of your spirit upon Christ and his cross in a way that's new and fresh and powerful, even life-changing. Could it be that the next few minutes could be a momentous event in the history of our church, of our personal lives? Could it really be? Why not? Why not? Because God is here, and your word is powerful, and your Son is our Savior. Help us to believe it, see it, and receive it. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. So what's the most important thing in your life? I mean, really, really, what's the most important thing? You know, you know like if you were to hook up uh, sort of a special x-ray machine that could read your heart and your mind... What would it tell you about what you really care about? What you really think about all the time? What really gets your heart thumping? Now, my personal answers to that question has changed over the year, but if you had stuck that little x-ray machine on me in the eighth grade, well, I know what the answer would have been. My hair. Man, I spent so much time in front of the mirror with a comb, with a brush, with scissors, with clippers, doing whatever I could to look just a little bit more like Johnny Depp. I ain't kidding you. I used so much Aquanet aerosol hairspray, I almost feel personally responsible for global warming, you know? You know, polar vortex, you know, rising sea level. I'm sorry, it's my fault, it's my fault, right? Let me pose the question to you another way. Each of our lives are centered upon something. What's at the center at yours? Is it a person, a relationship, your family? Is it your career or a title that you hold? Is it a hobby that's become a lifestyle? that's become an identity? Is it a public reputation, your sexual orientation, your political affiliation, a priceless physical possession? It's that something that defines you and drives you that explains why you are the way you are, why you do the things you do, the center of your life. What is it? And I don't know about you, but when I ask myself that question, for some reason, I get a little, little uncomfortable, a little bit even nervous. And maybe it's because deep down I know, we know, that the question is a really important one, and we're not always sure what the answer actually is. But the question is an important one, isn't it? What's at the center of your life. 
Well, today we're starting a four-week sermon series that we're calling A Cross-Centered Life. Because the Bible through and through, especially in the New Testament, proposes to us that the, at the center of our sense of identity and meaning in our relationship with God ought to be, should be, the cross of Jesus Christ. And that the life of a true follower of Christ should be what you might call a cross-centered life. After all, if you look through the New Testament scriptures, you hear things like this from Galatians 6.14, May I never boast about anything. May I never find my joy, my greatest pleasure, my highest confidence in anything except the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ. Or 1 Corinthians 15.3, What I received, I passed on to you as of first importance that Christ died for our sins. Or 1 Corinthians 2.2, I resolved to know nothing while I was with you except Jesus Christ and Him crucified. Galatians 2.20, Well, what's your life all about? The life I now live in the body, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. You see, because the cross is the doorway to life and meaning and salvation, the cross of Jesus is the power to change and to grow spiritually and morally and emotionally. The cross transforms our view of the world, giving us a new lens through which we're to see All of life, not just church life, not just moral life or spiritual life, but in fact, all of life. So what does that mean, living a cross-centered life? For the death of Jesus to be the defining event, the identity-shaping reality for you and for me. And you can see, friends, how this is relevant for all of us. Whether if you're here today as someone who's not a professing Christian, investigating the Christian faith, asking questions about who Jesus is, that you would understand that whether or not you disagree with some of what you hear, that you can use the Bible as a dialogue partner to help answer one of the most important questions about your life. Namely, what's most important to you? And to understand a little bit more of what the heart of the Christian faith really is. No, not just the biography of Jesus, not just the teaching and the morality of the Christian religion, but rather at the heart of it all, the cross of Christ. A little clue so that you know what to focus in on what to really examine, what to really test, and to probe. And if you're a Christian, this is for you too. Because it's easy day to day to center your Christian faith on lots of other things, isn't it? To say, well, my life is built upon the things I do for Jesus, or the center of my life is my faith, how I am relating to God, how I am experiencing of God, 
Whereas the scriptures tell us that at the center needs to be none other than the cross of Christ. And someone says, well, that's old news, isn't it? Elementary kind of stuff. But no, we never move on from the cross. We only move into a deeper and more profound understanding of the cross. Dear Christians, do you understand that what you need today isn't a new spiritual technique or a new revelation for God from God, what you need in your Christian growth is a deeper, fuller, more multifaceted, and more personally powerful grasp of the one same truth that made you a Christian in the first place, the cross of Jesus Christ. So that's what we're looking at for the next four weeks starting with now. And each week we're going to look at a very short passage, hallelujah, which I would love to invite you to take in all of its brevity and to memorize it. So this verse here, Romans 5, 8, to take it into your soul and to take some of the things we're about to point out and observe and to Make it a part of who you are in your soul, in your mind, in your life, if indeed we are trying to grasp what it means to live a cross-centered life. Here it is. Let me say it one more time for you. But God demonstrates his own love for us in this. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. And we'll look at this just in two quick parts. First, what is the cross? And secondly, how then can we live a cross-centered life? So first, what is the cross? By cross, of course, we're referring to the crucifixion of Jesus Christ. His execution on a Roman cross outside of Jerusalem in the middle of the first century. As the verse states simply, Christ died. But you see, without the next word in that verse, in that sentence, the death of Christ has little meaning, little significance, little relevance to us. After all, a lot of people died on Roman crosses in that day. A lot of people tend to die. I'm talking about the most important word, I think, in the entire verse. This little tiny word, for. F-O-R, for. Which translates the Greek word, huper, which means on behalf of, instead of, in place of. Christ died for us. Christ died instead of us. Christ died in place of of us. In other words, at the heart of the cross, you want to get it? The heart of the cross is the concept of substitution. When your teacher is sick, you get a substitute teacher at school, don't you? When someone comes off the bench in a sport, we say they're subbing in for another player. 
When the ritual sacrifices were performed all throughout the Old Testament, a lamb would be slaughtered as a substitute for the sacrificer. A faithful Israelite would say, yes, God forgives me, but only because that dead lamb took the punishment that I deserve. And when the prophet foretold what the Messiah would one day come and do, Isaiah wrote with unmistakably substitutionary language and imagery when he said he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The punishment that brought us peace was Upon him, and by his wounds, we are healed. When John the Baptist looked up one day, he saw Jesus walking toward him, and knowing what Jesus would do one day for the sins of the world, he exclaimed, Behold, right there, the Lamb of God. Because when Jesus went to the cross... He died not for himself, but as a substitute instead of you in place of a sinner like me. He bore God's wrath in my place. He suffered the judgment that I deserved. Which, of course, was the worst of his sufferings upon the cross. I don't know about you, but I spent the whole summer running away from mosquitoes in my backyard. Jesus' physical suffering was a gruesome nightmare. So much so, you know, you didn't even utter the word crucifixion in polite Roman society. But Jesus' physical sufferings, yes, the nails, yes, the torture, yes, the suffocation by which you actually died when you were crucified, was but a mosquito bite compared to the suffering that he endured in his soul. That Jesus was afflicted with torture and execution of hell. The non-visible suffering of judgment that shook him, that tore him to shreds there on the cross. Not for his own failings and sin, but for mine and for yours. The wrath of God that he bore. That instead of inflicting upon us the judgment that we deserved, God in Christ endured it for us instead of us. In place of us, substitution. And if we take that idea, the heart of the cross, and we just internalize it a little bit more, even picturing myself as best as we can, picturing this event in my mind and in my heart, how personal the cross becomes. Not just an idea or a historical event, but literally, in my place, condemned he stood in my place. Suffering instead of me. Can you almost, almost 
feel it. The agony of hell upon Jesus' soul on Calvary. How real and personal the cross of Christ becomes when we understand it as a substitutionary sacrifice. As Martin Luther once said, when we really start to get this, you feel as if Jesus died only yesterday. Because Jesus died for you. And when it is indeed that personal, it really does start to impact our personal lives, doesn't it? And so we raise the question then, how then shall we live? What then does it mean for us to live a cross-centered life? Two things that I want to put before you just for starters. We got three more weeks, don't we? Number one, a cross-centered life, then, is a life secure, personally secure, in God's love. God's love. The verse tells us directly that God demonstrates his own love for us in the cross. Because we came before him as helpless people, not just sinful people, but helpless people, unable to rescue ourselves or cleanse ourselves or appease ourselves. God then, on his own initiative, while we were still sinners... Him taking the first step, not because we asked it of him, not because we demanded it of him, and even if we had, not that we could have done anything about it in ourselves. Jesus paid it all. The love of God manifest before our very own eyes. But here's the reality. That most of us live day to day trying to base our security of God's love in just about everything else. We're looking for love in all the wrong places, in our daily circumstances. Which change, don't they? We got good days and we got bad days. It's a rocking boat that you're trying to find secure footing upon. Or yes, of course, we have the affirmation of nature. A beautiful day like today, it does speak to us the love of God. Yes, well, nature until the rain floods my basement. Until the sunshine goes away, until the cold sweeps in, and I don't know if I'm going to have housing next week. The circumstances in life, the things that make us joyful, yes, God speak to us, speaks to us through that. The blessings that affirm to me that I am loved by God, life going well, a job opening, a past exam. The blessing of finances that you didn't think would come through. Friendship. Family. Until it's not there. Or until they fail you. Or until they turn out, or it turns out, to be a fraud. 
See, all these things, even the wonderful temporal blessings that God gives us, are wonderful, but they are fleeting. And they are things that even moth, moths and rust can, in fact, destroy. But here we have now the eternal, precious, unbreakable love of God in Jesus given to us in the cross of Christ. And do you understand when you have your sense of God's love for you anchored in the cross, His death, His substitutionary sacrifice for you, you're secure indeed because nothing can touch the cross of Jesus. Nothing can change what He's done for you. It was accomplished in history and sealed for eternity. We're told here that the cross of Jesus is the place where God best proves His love for you. There's a song, I Look to the Cross, written by Mark Altrogi, writes, so helpfully, simple song. How do I know you love me? I look around and see the sunshine, the rain, the wind, and the trees. But should these gracious tokens all fade from my sight, I still won't doubt your love. For I fix my eyes, I look to the cross where I most clearly see your awesome love displayed for me. For even when I was dead in sin, you died for me. Oh, I look to the cross. When you're going through a time of trial and you're looking around for these temporal circumstances to affirm you of God's love for you and you don't see it. Or when the pain is real or the depression is thick or the opposition is real. Where are you turning to find security in God's love, to feast on the love of God? Look no further. Look to the cross of Christ. The security that we find that gives us an anchoring point where we no longer swing up and down from the highs and lows, which is what happens when we feel like God loves me only as well as I have performed today. What does it mean to live the cross-centered life? It means to know that you're standing before God. Your acceptance before God, your forgiveness before God, your belovedness in the eyes of God is based not upon the latest thing that you've done for Him or the bad thing that you've avoided before Him, but rather it's based and anchored and grounded in the cross of Christ. Don't you see how different this is? If my salvation, if my standing before God, if my emotional stability depends upon what I am, what I have done, what I desire, well, what am I going to do? Because I change, I fail, I falter. If it depends at all upon me, then I'll never have security in the love of God in Christ. 
But then God says the apostle, as Dr. Martin Lowe-Jones writes, because my salvation, my standing before God, my belovedness before God depends upon the love of God and that alone. And nothing else, nothing in me. I'm sure of it. I'm certain of it. Why? Because God does not change. And God cannot change. And if I am within the scope of the love of God now, I always shall be. Amen. Security in the love of God. Secondly, a cross-centered life is a life of joyful repentance. Of repentance. You know, the cross of Christ is obviously good news. We've been talking about it, but it's only good news if we understand that it is first bad news to sinners like us. As John Stott writes, nothing reveals the gravity of sin like the cross. For if there was no way by which the righteous God could righteously forgive our unrighteousness except that he should bear it in himself in Christ, well, our sin must be serious indeed. It cost the life of the Son of God. That's how bad it is. I am. Sin is the Ebola of the soul. It's killer, incurable, contagious. Sin is independence from God, kicking and rebellion against His role as your maker, king, and savior. Sin is idolatry, looking to anything besides God to make me happy and important and secure. Sin is, yes, breaking the moral rules of God, but sin is also trying to bribe God by keeping the rules, you know. Sin isn't only about what I do, but what I should do, but don't do. It isn't just what I do, but what I think. Not just what I think, but what I feel and what my motives are. Oh dear. Sin is failure to love. It's our self-centered commitment to me, me, me. The invitation of the cross then is... To acknowledge your sin. To nod your head and say, yes, it's true. But don't forget, look, if the cross is the great substitution, and if Jesus is my substitute, then this sin matter is personal. It takes much more than just acknowledging that I'm a sinner. Does it grieve your heart? Does it pain you that you would offend the God of your soul so? When was the last time you wept over your self-centeredness? When was the last time you, you trembled in your heart because of that way that you hurt that person that's dear to you again as you so habitually tend to? When was the last time that you grieved over the evil in your heart, where it felt like a personal matter between you and God and the God of the cross, where you were able to say in so many words, like the words of Horatius Bonar, who wrote in this 19th century hymn, "'Twas I that shed the sacred blood. I nailed him to the tree.'" 
I crucified the Christ of God. I joined the mockery. Around the cross, the throng I see, mocking the sufferers groan, yet still my voice, it seems to be as if, as if I mocked alone. Which draws you into this incredible picture to say, as far as I'm concerned, as far as I can hear of all the mocking voices of all the people that yelled, crucify, so aware of my own sin am I that it's as if I was the only one responsible for his death. The greatest recipient of all of his grace. As the Apostle Paul says, I know, I just know, I am the chief of all sinners. Which you can only say, to go back to the first point, if you are absolutely secure in the love of God, anchored in the cross. Because who the heck is going to dare to be that honest about all the junk in your head and in your heart, the secret things that nobody knows about but you and God. Who's going to dare be honest about that unless you are rock-solid confident that God's love for you is not going to change the minute you utter that confession out of your mouth? That you're secure that God is not going to kick you out or change his opinion of you or disqualify you because he just recently found out that you're a sinner while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. You're never going to surprise him. You're never going to tell him anything that he doesn't already know. It's built into his love. So why don't you just be bald-faced honest with him, dear friends? Why don't you just tell him the truth that he already knows? Because the invitation is not simply to spiritual masochism, just feel real bad about yourself and just just feel bad about yourself. The invitation of repentance is an invitation of joy. The joy of going to the low place that you might be lifted up. The joy of tasting true sorrow so that you might finally taste the sweetness of the cross. And I know there are some of you here today that have been talking about the cross and even maybe identifying with the cross of Jesus for years and years and years. And yet when I say something like tasting the sweetness of the grace of Jesus, you have no idea. And you know you have no idea what that's like. Because maybe you've been walking the walk and talking the talk and putting on labels and identities upon yourself and doing the church thing, maybe. And yet you've never let yourself truly go to that dark place, that sorrowful place, that low place, and never truly let Jesus rush in with the sweetness of grace and restore your soul and lift you high and exalt you with his joy. You see, the great promise of Scripture is that in the low place of repentance, it's there that you find God's grace. The book of James, humble yourselves before the Lord and He will lift you up. God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. This past week, I've been pondering this 
crazy thing we have going on in our backyard with our gutter system. Which of course is this wonderful contraption that pulls all the water from the roof, which is not that big of a roof, and collects it and sends it down this wonderful pipe and right into my basement. No, but that's not the point here, but straight down. And you sit there and you watch, as I've been watching a lot lately, the force of the water that's just coming down almost as if someone turned on a faucet, if not a faucet, a fire hydrant. That's how strong the current is coming out of that gutter. And then you look up in the sky, you shake your head and you say, I don't understand where this is coming from. It's not even raining that hard. Because, in fact, this is what a gutter's job is, to take one droplet of rain that hits one corner of the roof and to pull it down and then to collect it with another droplet of rain on the other side of the roof and to pull it down and to collect it all from what felt like started as a sprinkling. And at the low point of the ground becomes nothing less than a rushing river. And I'm a city guy, and so I know gutters, but if you could imagine for a second a whole mountain range, remember what those are, mountains, right? Vast and tall and high, not a roof, but collecting rivers of water, rains one droplet at a time, And if you could imagine yourself standing at the bottom, the lowest point of the massive valley, in between this mountain range and these hill tops. And if this rushing water is what my little roof can collect and send down to the lowest point, imagine what kind of water can be pulled down from these tall mountains into the valleys, down to the deepest point. Indeed, a river, a flowing, rushing river of water that gives life. And so time and again, the scriptures uses this metaphor to say, yes, yes, indeed, go down to the valley, go down to the valley, because that's where you'll find the water for your soul. Because the rivers of grace always flows to the lowest point. God gives grace to the humble to the repentant. Repentance. And we have so many ways to defend ourselves against the things we do and things that we are. Repentance. And we have so many ways that we excuse ourselves, tell ourselves it wasn't that bad. Repentance. The doorway to the grace of God, to a life that is changing more and more into the image of God. Which is why a cross-centered life is not a life that repents just once when you become a Christian. A cross-centered life is not a life where you find repentance once in a while. The cross-centered life is a life where repentance is like breathing. 
Not suffocating, though it can feel like that. It's like getting life all over again. It's opening the mouth of your soul and with a parched soul, drinking the rivers of delight again and again and again. Because you know, I am a sinner, and while I was still a sinner, here it is, the love of God most fully demonstrated. Christ died for me. Why would I then ever hold back from coming clean with God? Why would I ever hold back from coming to Him on knees with honesty? Why would I ever count repentance as anything but the most powerful door for God's rushing, life-changing grace? Grace that brings joy, that lifts us up, that changes our lives. It's a cross-centered life. A cross-centered life. Do you want it? Pray for it. Memorize unto it. Live it. For our joy, for his glory. Our great substitute, Jesus. Let's pray. So we come to you, Savior, substitute, asking that you would just fill our hearts in a whole new way, that your grace might penetrate the full breadth of our lives, that we might unpack together and throughout this week and the coming weeks this great mystery of a cross-centered life. We need your spirit. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's stand together and let's sing something about Jesus.